Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 20. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brothers, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that in your sovereign plan, Jew and Gentile are now united in the blood of Christ. We praise you for that truth, Father. We pray that we as a church would be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and that only salvation is found through him and him alone. Help us now to turn our hearts and our minds to your word this morning as we seek to worship you in spirit and truth. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How's everyone? Oh, you look good. Praise God. I really, really enjoy seeing you, seeing your smiling faces on Sunday morning. Uh, I just can't wait to be here with you every Sunday. We are going to be in that chapter, Acts chapter 21, a little bit in chapter 22 as well. If you need, a couple things, if you need to follow along with my message, we have the outline that's in your bulletin. So if you have that bulletin with you, you can follow along, track with me where I'm going with the message. Also, Pastor Patrick has just done such a fabulous, awesome job of just creating these follow-up questions so you can go home, take the message, think about how it applies to your life. Good, good stuff there. Also, you may have missed, if you came in just a little bit late, you may have missed that we have a new Connections lunch right after this service. It's going to be back in the youth room, room 12. And so if you are new or relatively new to Christ Community Church, we want to invite you to come back. We've got some stuff we want to give you. We want to meet you, and uh, we want you to get, us to, know, uh, get to know us a little bit better as well. Okay, years ago I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala, and I was there with a team, and it was a really interesting experience. It wasn't really what I thought it was going to be. I was hoping that I could go on the trip and then just like spend some time on the beach or, or just relax when we weren't doing like missions trip stuff. But it was a very different experience. <laughs> yeah, because I just wanted to give it all for Jesus, right? <laughs> but uh, when I got there, it was a very different experience uh, of any trip I had been on before. We were, we were really kind of, the team was in lockdown for most of the time. Most of the time we were there, uh, when we pulled up, when the van that drove us that shuttled us from the airport to the home where we were staying. And it was this house that had been converted into a church building, and teams would come and do projects while they stayed there and then go out during the day, administer at schools and things like that, do medical missions. And so when they drove us up, it was about midnight. We got there, and Dr. Tito, who was the resident missionary there, looked at us and the whole medical team, and he said, listen, and he was serious as a heart attack. He said, no noise. When I open this van door, you walk briskly to that front door, and you stand there, and we don't want to draw any attention to ourselves, okay? And everybody was like, yes, sir. When he opened that door, we did exactly what he said. Uh, and that was really kind of our whole our experience. Most of the time, staying there, we weren't able to get out of the compound, like out of the home, and just take a walk down the street uh, because it was very dangerous. There were a lot, drugs were rampant there. So we were there probably that first, better part of that first week, feeling pretty cooped up, working on the place, doing some projects, feeling pretty cooped up. And then we went out, we all loaded in a couple of vans. 
we went out to a place called Palencia, and there was this beautiful, amazing little Christian school that they ran. We went out there to, out there to help them with their projects as well. And when we got to the town where the school was, it looked like a dangerous place. It looked like a place you didn't want to stop and get gas or get a soda or get out and stretch your legs. So we drove straight to the front door of the school. Now, the school had this big Jurassic Park kind of door. I'm not kidding. It was this big metal door. And when we drove up to it, he honked a couple of times, and this big metal door just rolled open, and we went inside. And inside, it was completely different. It was just completely different. The place was immaculate. They kept it so nice. You felt safe. Everyone came out, the students, the people who worked there, they came out to greet us as the team who was there to serve them for a couple of weeks, and it was the warmest reception that I ever remember uh, receiving, just ever. It was so warm and so friendly, and you know what was great about it is here are these people who speak a different language, they live in a different culture than we do, and we have the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit, and you could just sense it. There was just something powerful about that. Now, the passage we just read, that's what Paul is experiencing. I mean, initially, he has been out for the better part of a decade, maybe more. And he hasn't been back to Jerusalem in a long time. And he has been planting churches in Gentile cities. And he has tried to take all of the covenants and the Torah and the scriptures, and he's tried to translate it for those Gentile audiences to Tell them, you are now part of the family of God by faith. And he's been working himself to death. And so there is this question on the table, are the, is this the same gospel? And when he gets back to Jerusalem, it turns out it is. The brothers in Jerusalem welcome him warmly. It's the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit, the same message. But that welcome is very short-lived. It's very brief. And we're going to find out today why that is. There is a roiling controversy among the people, among the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and the Jews there, and also the Jewish Christians. What kind of gospel is this Paul teaching? What kind of message is this that is going out into the rest of the world? So our main idea today is Paul is going to teach us how to handle false accusations. He's going to teach us how to handle False accusations in a Christian way. Because when Paul gets back here, this is what he is going to experience in Jerusalem. Number one, the first thing we see in the story is that Jerusalem Christians need clarification about his ministry. Jerusalem Christians need clarification about Paul's ministry. So while Paul is out there carrying his cross and taking the gospel to the nations... Collecting offerings from rich Gentile churches, taking them back to Jerusalem, to the poor and the destitute Jerusalem church, pouring out his life as a drink offering for the sake of God and his gospel, the Jerusalem church is being lied to. They are being told that he believes things he doesn't believe. They are being told that he teaches things that he really doesn't teach. And it's not really fun being on the receiving end of that, is it? It's not. Here in verse 21, look at what James says. James comes up to him. James, the leader of this council, this church in Jerusalem. 
He says, but they have been informed, misinformed about you. So he says, so many are coming to Christ. So many Jews, as we just read, are coming to Christ, and they are zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. And so what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come and therefore do what we tell you to do. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Super fun. (laughs) And then everyone will know that what they are told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision. We, we covered this in chapter 15. They sent this decision out to the Gentile churches that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, we said in Acts chapter 15 when we covered that, all of these things they're talking about are tied to the temple, the pagan enterprise. They're tied to the temple. In other words, this is code for saying, you're a Christian now, don't also be a pagan. Like, don't go to worship. Don't go to church on Sunday and then to worship at the pagan temple on Monday or Saturday. So the background here is that whatever the significance of this ritual vow taken and Paul's payment of it for these four men for seven days, this is Paul's visible participation in Torah culture. This is designed to demonstrate to everyone who has a question about him, this guy believes in the Bible. This guy is a covenant Jew. He affirms Moses and he affirms our Old Testament, right? And so this is designed to reinforce this fact. Now, why does Paul do it? Because he does do it for seven days, the better part of seven days. Why does he do it when he knows he doesn't have to? In 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 18, there's a section there where Paul wants to talk about his freedom. Paul wants to talk about his personal liberty. And he gives us an example His freedom to receive compensation for his work as a preacher of the gospel among them. And here's what he says. He says, am I not free? Oh, of course. I'm I'm an apostle, right? Am I not an apostle? Verse 18. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make full use of my rights in the gospel. What is he talking about here? Paul knows that with regards to the law, And with regards to what he is owed, he's free. In other words, what he's saying is, when I came to you, I know everybody else is getting paid. Like Peter, Apollos, the other apostles who minister among you, your pastors. And I know also in Greek culture that your philosophers and your professional speakers, your rhetors, they are also being compensated for their ministry among you. They have a right to do it, and I have that right too. But I I forgo that right. Because my higher value is to serve you, not to assert my rights among you. That's a higher value for me, to serve you rather than than to assert my freedom among you. And what Paul is trying to tell them is, there should be nothing between a Gentile believer or a a pagan and, and the cross. And if I thought that receiving remuneration was going to put a stumbling block, an obstacle, between me and a Gentile who didn't know Jesus, I didn't want to ever be blamed for only being there for the money. So in this particular instance, this is just something the Lord has led Paul to do. 
And so what he does is Paul has the value of serving them. That is his higher value than that of expressing his personal freedoms and rights. He goes on to say in verse 19 and 23 of that same chapter, he says, although I am free from all, I'm not anyone's slave. I'm not beholden to any group, to any constituency. He says, I have made myself a slave to everyone, actually, in order to win more people. Now, to the Jews, I became like a Jew, so that I could win the Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. He's talking about, I'm not obligated to fulfill the ceremonial or any of those laws in the Old Testament that you find because those things have been completed. He says, to those who are without the law, like one without the law. Though I'm not without God's law, that is his moral law, but under the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? It's the moral law of God. It's the law of love in Christ Jesus, of life in Christ Jesus, which sets you free from the law of sin and death. He says, to those who are without the law, I became like one without the law. He says, to the weak, in verse 22, I became weak in order to win the weak. Now, I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every means possible, save some. Now, I do this all because of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. Listen, what he's saying is, this is my MO wherever I go. If I have to become like a Gentile without breaking the moral law of God, in those areas that are sort of tangential or superficial, I will become a Gentile to reach them. When I'm back in Jerusalem, this is exactly what he's doing in this story. When I'm back in Jerusalem, you would know me as a Torah-observant Jew. Why? Because I'm trying to reach Jews. Though he himself is free from the constraints of the law, the law of Moses, for salvation. And this is what he's trying to explain to them. And this is exactly the kind of thing that the Jews in Jerusalem have been hearing about. I mean, this is exactly, the word has gotten back to the Jews in Jerusalem and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes are trying to make much of this. They're trying to stir up the Jewish Christians who have come to faith in Jesus. They still love the law of Moses, and they're trying to say, that Paul is teaching people not to follow Moses. Number two, he's arrested, and he's frankly falsely accused. So he's arrested. They take him into custody. They falsely accuse him. Watch how this false accusation works. I want to show it to you. The anatomy of a false accusation. Now, the Jewish zealots interrupt his act of devotion. Verse 27 says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia. Now, who are the ones who are there stirring up the Jews in Jerusalem? They're the very ones that Paul was planting churches in their towns ministering in their synagogues, and now they have traveled all the way back. They have stalked him, followed him back to Jerusalem so they could stir up this roiling controversy, so they could make much of the uneasiness that Jews in Jerusalem have toward Paul. And seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. (laughs) I think that's funny. And this is the man who is is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people, against the law, and this place. And moreover, he, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, this these accusations, they're wrong. All four counts are wrong. They're wrong. Now, false accusations can come in two forms, okay? 
So the first form is this. Being a pastor, I've been on the receiving end of this a lot. The first form is this. False accusations can come from a sincere person who holds a sincere belief and they just misunderstood you. And they haven't taken the time to ask you what you believe, what you think, and what you're all about. They just haven't taken the time to do that. And in that case, that person is sincere. They're just sincerely wrong. Another uh, motivation for false accusations can be a person who is just a deceiving, sinful person who actually does want to defame you and slander you. This, this is a dangerous person. Now, I personally believe that the Jews from Asia are of that type. They are not there to just hear Paul out and give him a really solid, good hearing. To hear him out, hear his context. They're not there to do that. They are there to defame him, to slander him in front of people. And so what are their false accusations? Well, he teaches against the people. They say in 28a, he's, he's teaching against our people. What are they talking about here? At issue is who are the people of God and what are the identity markers that prove that we're the people of God? How are the people of God identified? So on the one hand, they want to define who are the people of God. Now, what have they heard? They've heard <laughs> that Paul has been out in these Gentile towns welcoming Gentiles into the family. And he's been welcoming the Gentiles into the family and telling them that the only badge of membership... The only visible sign of membership is actually invisible. It's the presence of the Spirit in your life, the reception of the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, that is the sign that you have now been brought into the family of God. Now, this is exactly what he has to teach the Galatians. <laughs> the Galatians have been saved. They're a church. And the Judaizers from Jerusalem now have come and they have shown up in Galatia to re-Judaize those Christians. In other words, in addition to believing in Jesus Christ by faith, by grace through faith alone, what they are saying is, ah, oh, you have to do these works of Torah too. You men, you have to be circumcised. All of you have to attend Sabbath. You have to observe the Sabbath and all three festivals of Leviticus 25 or whatever. And you have to eat a kosher, strict Jewish diet. Now, these are the marks of Torah. This is what he calls the works of the law, the works of Torah. And what Paul is saying is absolutely not. You do not have to do that. You do not have to convert to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. Look at what he says in Galatians 3, 2. He says, I just want to learn one thing from you. Okay, you receive the Spirit. You know you have the Spirit. You know you have the sign that you're in the covenant family now. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, the works of Torah? or by believing what you heard? In other words, did you receive it by doing all of these things, or did I come to you and preach the gospel to you, you believed it, and you received the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming presence of the Spirit? Verse 14, he says, the purpose, for, that is for Christ dying on a cross, was that the blessing of Abraham, the promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 22, that that blessing, that promise would become yours would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And the Jerusalem Jews, the believing Jews, the non-believing Jews have heard that he's saying stuff like this. Who are the people of God? Well, if you're one of Paul's countrymen and you live in this territory, you have been raised to believe that it's a son of Abraham who is a Torah-observant Jew. 
And now to be told that the Gentiles also are being welcomed into the faith or into the family by faith, this is very hard for you to hear. So this accusation is really false. He's not teaching against the people. He's saying it's both and. We are the people of God, and God has extended the invitation to the Gentiles to join us as well. Second accusation is he teaches against the law. He teaches against Torah. At issue is which laws does God bind upon us? Now, I think everybody in here would probably agree, most likely agree, that the moral law of God is still binding, right? Like, do not worship other gods. That's the first one. <laughs> okay, do not, do not have other gods. Do not commit adultery. Don't murder. Those are all still really good ideas, I think. <laughs> like, the, that, that moral law flows from the character of God himself. He is the anchor of all that he commands us to do, right? He, he is the source of it. And so, at issue is which laws are still binding for the Christian, which laws are still binding for a human being. Is it the whole law of Moses? Are we obligated to circumcision and festivals and kosher and all, all the rest of this? Here's what he says in Romans 3.28. He says, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of Torah. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Doesn't that sound contradictory? Didn't he just say we're not saved by works of the law? So how are we upholding the law? Well, you're upholding it because the law is completed in Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, do not think that I have come to annul the Torah or the prophets. I haven't come to annul the law and the prophets or to abolish them. I've come to fill them full. In other words, they were incomplete. Apart from God, they were not completed, and now they have been brought to their intended completion. The circle is closed in Jesus Christ, and the old covenant is obsolete. It's not obsolete because God just trashed it and started a fundamentally new covenant. No, it's obsolete because it has been brought to its intended completion. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says, 8.13. He says, by saying a new covenant now, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. How many of you have a cell phone on you right now? Do you know that tomorrow it'll be obsolete? Right? A computer. You could go out and buy the most slam-bang amazing computer right now, top dollar, and in a year that thing will be obsolete. Why? Because those manufacturers create those things. They design those things with planned obsolescence so that you'll buy the new thing. And this Torah covenant, this covenant with Moses, these laws, they were always intended to be completed in Christ. That's why they're obsolete. Not because God has thrown them away, but because God has filled them full. Now, that's what Paul is teaching, but what have they heard? They have heard, man, he's speaking against the law. No, he's not. He's telling you what the proper application of it is in the Christian faith and what its proper use is and what its proper purpose is. Third accusation is that he's teaching against this place. Well, what are they hearing? What place is he talking about? He's talking about the temple complex. Paul's down in the temple, and they're trying to say, man, Paul is, is anti-temple. Now, Christians have always had a problem with this, always, since Jesus. John chapter 2, remember that story? Jesus walks into the temple complex, and he says, tear down this temple, and I'll rebuild it again in three days. At his trial, 
false accusers came forward to falsely accuse him of saying, I'll tear down this temple. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, you destroy this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. That's what Jesus said. Okay, what temple is he talking about? John said, we did not understand he was talking about the temple of his body. What's a temple? A temple is the place where the manifest presence of God dwells. Where does the manifest presence of God dwell? In Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment, he is the incarnation of God. He is God incarnate, and so wherever Jesus is, the temple of God is. Wherever the body of Christ is, the temple of God is. This is what Paul has been teaching. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he says, for we are the temple of the living God, and God said, I will dwell and walk among men, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Lots of places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, the New Testament teaches that God had always intended to do away with the physical temple, the temple of Solomon, the rebuilt second temple. God had always intended to fulfill that type and that shadow by pouring the Holy Spirit out on all flesh, and now where is the temple? Tell me where it is. It's right here in this gymnasium, in this sanctinasium, right? (laughs) I stole that. But it's right here in this room where we are the gathered body of Christ, the presence of God is manifest. Wherever you walk out of this room into your world, the presence of God is with you because the presence of God is in you. Okay, so now this is the kind of thing that Paul is teaching. And you can understand how the Jews might misunderstand this, how they might take this wrong. The fourth accusation is he's defiled the temple with Gentiles. Has he really? <laughs> I mean, they're claiming that this Ephesian guy that's come with him is that he brought him into the temple and into the Jewish court. Uh, and, and this is a really odd accusation for a couple of, at least a couple of reasons. One, where in the Torah does it say that the Gentiles cannot participate in Jewish worship? The tabernacle in the first temple, that's not really part of their laws, not part of the regulatory uh, commands. Okay, so the Gentile court, which is this outer court where the Gentiles were allowed to come at least that far, is really a second temple phenomenon. It's really a second temple contrivance. And there's a whole history behind that. I won't bore you with it today, but, but what they had is they had this outer circle where the Gentiles could come. And they had entry points for Jews to go through that outer circle to go into the Jewish area And there were these stone uh, tablets right next to the entry uh, that have, and archaeologists have found these, they're epigraphs. And they have etched in those stones, no Gentile beyond this point on pain of death. You'll die. We'll stone you to death if you go beyond this point. Where's that in Moses? No, 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 no. The Torah makes room for the sojourner, look this up, the sojourner and the foreigner, who come to Israel and say, we want to be Jews. Like, we want to be worshipers of Yahweh. And they proselytize. They become circumcised. They attend Sabbath or they observe Sabbath. The festivals, they eat the kosher diet. They go all the way. They become practicing Jews. They are supposed to be allowed in. So this is a really odd accusation in the first place. In the second place, it's not true. Paul did not bring this Ephesian uh, brother of his into the, uh, the Jewish temple courts. He didn't do that. So these are false accusations. These are false. 
And these people are trying to level at Paul. This guy is against our religion. He's turned away. He's, a, he's apostate. He's a blasphemer. What are we going to do with him? And then Jerusalem just explodes in chaos. <laughs> I mean, it's just, man, they are having a hissy fit. Like an old-fashioned sanctified hissy fit here. And they are just losing it. Because this guy is in our temple teaching about Jesus. Look at verse 34. It says, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. This is the, the Roman centurion or the commander. And when Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the Roman soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mass of people following, yelling, get rid of him. So how does Paul handle it? How does Paul teach us to handle unjust criticism? I want to give you some application points here. How do we handle false accusations? Number one, you need to keep your cool and speak their language. Just keep your head. Speak their language. Paul, Paul was raised to fight. Paul loved to argue. Paul was raised as a rabbinic Jew. He was raised in a culture of disputation, what's called a culture of disputation. In other words, the way that they figured out God's will on any matter is they shouted and argued about it in public. That's how they did it. So Paul was raised, and, and I feel a kindred heart with him because I was, I was bred by my dad to fight. You know, I lived in a very difficult situation, and I, my dad raised me and my brother to be fighters. And so anybody who asks me a question, like, hey, where's that one class? I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like my natural, what's in my flesh is I'm ready to, I'm ready to come to fisticuffs, right? <laughs> now, this is the way Paul is, but Paul does not do this. What Paul does not do is he doesn't lean back or fall back on his old nature, his old sinful nature. He doesn't do that. He teaches us. He stays cool. He stays level-headed. And then I love this. He says, verse 37, as he was about to uh, be brought to the barracks, uh, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you now? The commander replied, you know how to speak Greek? So this is obviously a Greek-Roman, a Greco-Roman. He says, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And Paul is like, what, what, what? <laughs> like, where, how did we get from, like, <laughs> me hating the temple to the leader of the Egyptian Assassin African League, right? You see what happens with accusations. They start to take on a life of their own. They start to gain momentum. They start to pick up all kinds of stuff that they just, like a snowball rolling down the mountain, just picks up everything in its path. And Paul has to stop him right here. He has to keep his cool. And I love the fact that when he's speaking to the Greek or the Roman, he speaks his language. And then when he addresses the crowd, he speaks Aramaic. It says he spoke Aramaic. Paul knows how to speak your language. Do your best to sympathetically listen to the other person. Do your best to say back to them what you think you're, they're trying to say to you. And this is what Paul does. He speaks their language. Figuratively, we can do the same as well. Number two, tell people who you are. Tell them who you are. Sometimes you could just diffuse the situation by stopping a person and saying, oh, hold on, that's not, that's not who I am. That's not me. So Paul has been accused now 
not only of hating the temple and speaking against the Torah and the people, but also being of this, this weird Egyptian leader of this, this band of assassins. And Paul says, hold on, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia. Uh, I, I'm a citizen of an important city. If you were born in Tarsus, you had automatic citizenship in that particular town, in that particular city. Another place in the, in the text, Paul looks at the commander and says, hey, how did you get your citizenship? He said, oh, man, many years, I saved up a lot of money, and I had great personal expense. And Paul says, actually, I was born a Jew, or I was born a Roman citizen, because that was more important in this world. It was a higher status, citizen status. So Paul has to tell them, nope, that's not who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. Look at chapter 22, verses 23 and 25. It says, they, as they were yelling and flinging aside their garments, now they're just disrobing, and they're throwing dust in the air. This is a, this is a Jim Dandy, this is a ten, ten, temper tantrum. And then the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with, with the scourge to discover the reason why they were shouting against him like this. As they stretched him out for the lash, that's an interesting way to put it, uh, Paul said to the centurion standing by him, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is condemned, and right away they become terrified because it is illegal and they actually could be scourged in like manner for doing it and they could actually be crucified for this. So this is very dangerous. And so Paul, right away, Paul says, I'm a citizen. I'm a natural-born Jew. I was born in Tarsus, a very important city in the Roman Empire. Whoever you thought I was, that's not who I am. About a year or so ago, I had a well-meaning couple from our church, and there were a lot of things while they attended our church that they were really angry about, and they had just been filing things away, fi- quite literally filing things away, and, uh, and listening to my sermons really very thoroughly, and so they had a lot of grievances. They had built up a file of a lot of grievances, and they came in and they wanted, wanted to chat with me about it, so I invited a couple of elders to come in with me. Now, I have to tell you, these folks made some false accusations against me. They were just out to lunch. Uh, I don't think a single one of them were anywhere near the truth. But they were also very sincere. They had no intentions whatsoever of slandering me. They weren't trying to start a Twitter mob to cancel me. Uh, they weren't just out to defame me. They really had some sincere concerns about things that I teach or stuff that I do or the way that I lead, and they came in and they decided it came to a head, they had to share it with me, and they did share it. Now, for the next two hours, I sat and I acquitted myself quite well. Uh, This is what I did. I kept my head, I tried to, and I tried to say, actually, no, I know you're sincere, I know you are, but you're sincerely wrong. I don't believe that, here's what I believe. That's not who I am, here's who I am. And sometimes, folks, you just gotta do that. Sometimes you just have to tell people who you are, and that's what Paul is doing here. Number three, tell people what you want. What do you want to get out of this? What do you want to get out of this interaction? That's usually when people come in to chat with me like that, chat with me. My first, one of my first questions is, what do you want from this? What are you looking to get out of this meeting? If it's in a public apology for me from the stage, that's probably not going to happen. Unless I really have sinned against you or offended you, I I would entertain that idea if I have done that. What do you want? What are you hoping to achieve here? Because let me tell you what I want. I want reconciliation. I want redemption. 
I want two Christian brothers or sisters to walk out of this room redeemed and reconciled in the love and the grace and mercy of God, don't you? And I want the truth. I want to know what the truth is. Sometimes you just have to tell people, hey, listen, what are we supposed to be getting out of here? And I ask them for it. Are you willing to reconcile with me today? Are you willing to put the value of reconciliation in Christ above any petty grievances? Are you willing to do that? And here's why I ask them that. Because the answer is always no until you ask. The answer is always no until you ask. Listen, the person didn't come in there that day to repent of being angry at me. That's not why they came there. They came in that day because they really want to put their stuff on the table and air out their grievances. So I ask them, hey, can we just agree before we even start here that reconciliation is our highest value? So I want that from you. And the answer is always no if you don't ask for it. Number four, make a reasoned defense of your case. Make a reasoned defense of your case. So Paul says in verse 39, he says, now I ask, let me speak to the people. And he says in chapter 22, verse one, brothers and fathers, he's standing before the whole crowd. He says, listen now to my defense before you. Now let me say something that might shock you. There are some ways in which I do not want you to follow Jesus. There are some things about Jesus that I don't want you to emulate. I, I, I don't want anyone in this church walking around saying, before Abraham was, I am. Super inappropriate. Okay, so can we just acknowledge that there are some things that Jesus did and some things that he said that we're not supposed to follow or emulate, right? And one of those things is being silent in defense. When Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, the scripture says he did not open his mouth. He really didn't answer. He didn't answer all of their charges. Like a lamb that was led before the shearer is silent, so was the Son of Man, the Son of God, before the Sanhedrin court. I had a friend of mine who would, he was a senior pastor, and he would never defend himself against people, just criticisms, false accusations. And I was sitting in one of those meetings, and we came out of the meeting, and he just took the high road, man, every time, too high. Like, he never defended himself. He never said, hey, this is what I want. This is who I am. This is what I really believe, right? He never did that. And I asked him one time, why don't you do that? He said, man, I'm just being like Jesus. I'm like, no. Go back to the context. Jesus has already defended himself at least for an entire week while he is in Jerusalem. Every day, in fact, one of the only things Jesus said in his trial was this, every day I taught openly in your temples. And every day you had the opportunity to come in public and find out what it is that I believe, what it is, who it is that I am. And so Jesus had already defended himself. Two, this trial is illegal. If you know anything about Jewish law, I'll just tell you right now, this trial is illegal. And for Jesus to give sworn testimony at an illegal trial would have legitimized the trial. And he's not about to do that. Thirdly, I truly believe that if Jesus had got, gotten into an argument with them over these things, their mind was already made up. And he likely could have been stoned right there before he ever made it to the cross. And it was God's good pleasure for Jesus to make his way to the cross, not to be stoned to death. So, those are reasons why Jesus was silent. But if you look in the book of Acts, the repeated pattern is this. The disciples are not silent. The apostle Peter defends himself on the day of Pentecost when they are charged for being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. 
the apostles before the Sanhedrin, they make a defense before the Sanhedrin of why Jesus is their Messiah and why they have believed. The apostle Paul repeatedly defends himself in every synagogue and in every courtroom he finds himself in. The book of Acts itself is an amicus brief. It was written to be a defense to be read at Paul's trial in Acts 28 to defend Paul before Caesar. So no, do not follow Jesus' example in that one instance. You are to defend yourself. You are to give people a rational, reasonable defense why you think you're right, why you think you're in the right. Now, if you're in the wrong, none of this applies to you. (laughs) Sorry. But the trick here is to defend yourself without becoming defensive. It's one of the worst things you could do is just light your hair on fire and just become defensive. And so let's recap. We want to keep our cool. We want to speak their language. We want to help move the conversation along toward reconciliation, toward a redemptive end. We We want to tell people exactly who we are, who God has made us, what our values are, what we believe, what we think we've said. And then tell people what you want. Tell people what you want. What is the goal here? What do you want to get out of this? And then be prepared to make a reasoned defense for your case. So I want to encourage you to do that. Now, a couple things. One, if you're a person and you're here and you've been on the receiving end of this, you might be a spouse of a person who is particularly accusatory. They're constantly accusing you of things that you frankly have not done. Or you might be working in a work, uh, an employment situation where this has happened to you. And I want to tell you, listen, follow the steps. Be like Jesus, be like Paul. Follow the steps. But if you're a person and you're here and you tend to accuse others quickly without asking questions first, my wise pastoral shepherding counsel to you is knock that off. Just knock it off. That's not helpful. If you accuse me of something that you think you've heard or something, a motivation, if you attribute a motivation to me that I don't actually have and you accuse me of it before you ask me what it is, that's sinful. Can we agree on that? And so God would have us live in reconciled relationships, and when this happens, as in human relationships, people lock horns, folks, we're to seek a redemptive end. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. Thank you for putting this in the Bible. As we look at it and just read through it, we're just so encouraged of just how practical it is. If you're here this morning and, and frankly, you feel a little beat up, somebody knocked you around a bit because they accuse you of something that frankly you didn't do or you don't believe or a value that you don't hold. Let me ask you this morning, will you let them go? Will you forgive that person? Choose to forgive. Right now in your heart, just choose to release them. Say, Father, I, I just forgive them. I forgive those people for misunderstanding me, for prejudging me, for not listening to me when I did try to explain myself. I I just forgive them. And Lord, I I just pray that you would be able to help us to be in a reconciled relationship again. Help us to do that. And if you're here this morning and you tend to accuse quickly, you tend to keep a running file of all your grievances, and you air them out immaturely, we just repent. Say you're sorry. God, I'm sorry when I have done that. 
when I have prejudged the situation or a person or their motives, God, would you forgive me? And you promised in your word that if we confessed our sins, you'd be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, would you just wash over us right now? And the Holy Spirit, just, just wash over us in forgiveness. We're all sinners, saved by grace. None of us are better than others. Would you help us do that? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.